and welcome to Interlude, Women's Cancer Stories with Dr. Toplinski. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Every week, I bring you stories of incredible women who are all at different stages of their cancer journey. We will talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. These women will share with you how cancer has affected them and how they are living life despite that. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each patient has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Dr. Amy Smith-Morris. Amy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at the age of 30 after she just returned from a honeymoon in Italy. When she started undergoing chemotherapy, she decided to share her experiences via Facebook Live. And since that time, she has used her skills and experiences to educate others about cancer and treatment. She's inspiring and enthusiastic and, oh, also 36 weeks pregnant. Amy, welcome. Can you start by introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. So my name is Amy. I go by Amy D. Farm D on social media. Um, and I am a cancer pharmacist turned cancer survivor. So I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at the age of 30. Can you talk about how you were diagnosed? Um, so I, I guess it really started in the late summer of 2016. I was preparing for our wedding. Um, so my husband and I were getting married at the end of September. Um, and at that time we were busy getting, preparing for all of that and uh, had our wedding at the end of September and quite quickly went on a honeymoon to Italy and Greece for two weeks. And, and so we did what I think everyone should do if they go to Italy and Greece, which is basically like eat pizza and drink wine for two weeks. And so that's what we did. And when we came home, um, I was understandably a little bit heavier than I normally am. And my husband and I are very athletic. And so once, we got back to eating and exercising, kind of the same we always do. Um, I began to notice my weight actually didn't decrease at all. If anything, it was like going up by like a pound or two, which is strange. Um, my husband has a PhD in nutrition. So uh, like our food is almost like annoyingly healthy sometimes. And so I was really not expecting that. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of strange, but nothing like really alarming. And then the only other symptom I really had was heartburn. So I had really bad acid reflux no matter what I ate, any time of day. So I kind of began keeping Tums in the drawer of my desk when I was at work and kind of going on that way. And then kind of out of, out of character for me, I went to my family doctor and I kind of thought I had given myself an ulcer or something. And so I thought it, it was going to be an easy fix. And so I went to her and she thought, oh yeah, definitely could be, but like it's easy to diagnose, so let's just rule that out. And, and then once it was ruled out, she quite quickly sent me for an ultrasound because, as you know, like women's ovaries are just kind of this big medical mystery still, and they grow weird things, and it can be cancer, and a lot of the times it cannot be cancer. So I went for my ultrasound, um, and at that point, found out I had a tumor the size of a football, so 21 by 10 centimeters. 
and kind of that's how my diagnosis um, started. So you had just gotten married, you had an amazing mm-hmm. honeymoon, and you come back to this news. What went through mm-hmm. your mind? Well, certainly my diagnosis was a roller coaster for sure. Um, when you find out you have a tumor the size of a football, you immediately think you're going to die. Um, so, of course, you go into shock, and I did too. Um, then kind of once I pulled myself back together, you know, you start looking to see what the likely diagnosis is in a 30-year-old with an enormous tumor. And a lot of the times it's not cancer. So then I became hopeful. And when I went to my first gynecologist, the same hope was in him as well. And so I went to him one day and then the next day he met me um, in emergency and basically stayed there with me until he forced our way into a CT scan. And then um, after that, it came back with a CT scan and some blood markers that, yes, it was cancer. So then it was down again, um, kind of on the roller coaster. Um, So certainly, like, it goes through phases of up and down until you actually have the tumor removed and have it looked under a microscope and know what it actually is. So it's certainly debilitating. And how quickly from that point did you end up having surgery? So I was diagnosed uh, just before Remembrance Day. Um, Sorry, I'm Canadian. So (laughs) Remembrance Day is November 11th. You have it's some other holiday there or something, isn't it? Or no? (laughs) So we have uh, Remembrance Day, November 11th. And then, so I was diagnosed like around the 9th. It's kind of um, gray because my diagnosis happened over a couple days. Uh, And then my surgery was November 25th. Were you in the hospital? Were you admitted? I wasn't. I felt really great. Like, honestly, I felt terrific. I was going to the gym. Like, I am a weightlifter, so I lift heavy weights. I was lifting heavy weights, feeling fine. Um, After kind of the initial shock wore off, I returned to work um, because I'm not the type of person to just sit around. So I actually went back to work. Like, I felt totally fine. Um, And so I was just out and about until the morning of my surgery. And how was your recovery from the surgery? And what happened next in terms of treatment? So I was admitted. So for me to get into surgery quickly, I was admitted into a hospital that doesn't do a lot of surgeries like mine, but they had available OR space. So my recovery was on a ward of mostly um, older people getting hips and knees replaced. So (laughs) he did not fit in. So I had this epidural because I had this a massive incision above my belly button and so I had this epidural and the nurses were kind of like uh we don't really we know, don't know what to do with you yeah exactly you don't belong here so so I was in the hospital for about seven days um until I could eat and um kind of get out of bed on my own so that took a while I had the epidural for quite a while um, for the pain control um and then once I went home my recovery was actually, it was very good. Like, I can't even complain at all. I went into surgery really athletic and really well-trained. And so I think people don't realize that. Like, if you have, if you can go to the gym between your diagnosis and between your surgery, you're doing yourself a favor because, like, you're going to be more fit going into surgery. And everyone remarked about that, like, my, how fast my recovery was. Um, and kind of, I'm not so much of a believer, like we hear a lot 
in medicine about, okay, you have surgery, then six weeks um, of nothing, and then you can get back to things. And, you know, I just said to a physio friend the other day, I was like, where does this six week rule come from? It's like kind of random. Yeah. Yeah. It's random. So for me, I don't think like being stagnant or still is ever a good thing for your body. And so I don't mean like I didn't get out of the hospital and go to the gym, but like I, you still have to squat down, sit on the toilet, like good Lord. (laughs) So I was doing things like that at home, I would say, like um, doing body weight squats, but like for five repetitions and then that's it for the day. So that's kind of how I started my recovery, which is like very humbling when you come from being an internationally ranked weightlifter to now like doing your body weight for five reps in a day. And so that's kind of how I progress my recovery post, uh, post-surgery. All right, we're gonna take a detour for a second. You're an internationally ranked bodylifter. You have to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, so I was the national champion in Canada in, in my weight class in 2013. Um, and then I held a national record in my weight class for about three years, I think. Um, and I just kept progressively breaking my own record. Um, I've competed on the North American, at the North American level, so on Team Canada. Um, so that was kind of my life before all of this. Like I was super athletic, I was super competitive. Um, and then when I was diagnosed, certainly I've gotten back to the national platform since my diagnosis. That's wonderful. But I'm not as good as I once was. It has to have been really humbling. I mean, you're, you're, the most you can do after surgery is, you know, body weight squats. What's- going through your mind emotionally at that point? I mean, honestly, I I use it so much. And like that group of people that I was training with was so much of a social support too. And I would say like even the sounds of being in the gym, like weights clinking and people talking, that was like so comforting to me that to just be present in that space without even doing much was like so back to my normal that it was, it was just so comforting for me. So that's what I did. Like I was bald and I was going to the gym and lifting a PVC pipe. And so, cause just cause like that sense of normalcy was just so comforting. And I think it's true. I mean, I think the emotional piece of it and also just moving your body and the endorphins yeah. that come from. Like, that's what I say to lots of people too. Like just the blood flow of like actually moving your limbs is going to be helpful and it's going to make you feel so much better. It's so true. How were you told about the results after the surgery? Um, so I think it was the next day, actually. Um, the surgeon I had, I don't know what it's like uh, in the States, but it, the surgeon I had was also my gynae oncologist too. So he did my treatment as well, which I think is really like the only tumor group in oncology that does that, really. Yeah. So yeah, it's actually pretty split in the United States. So I'm a medical oncologist and I administer chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and so forth for gynecologic cancers. Uh, But there are some places where the gynecologic oncologist who does the surgery also does the systemic therapy. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So mine was like, he was the same. So he followed me throughout my entire, from my diagnosis to um, finishing chemotherapy. And so he had come the day after my surgery. Um, 
like he had told my husband, sorry, you're just so high, you know, when you get surgery. <laughs> All the same, man. <laughs> you're just so like stone. So I, he had come to tell my husband that day that things had gone well. But then he came back the next day, and that's really what I remember, is that he um, told me what the tumor was. And then because of, cause I we had it narrowed down to just a few different tumor types, then I knew what the prognosis was and what the plan was going to be moving forward. But what I loved about it is before my surgery, it was him and he had a resident that I knew as well. And um, I said, like, you guys better be taking, like, tons of pictures of this thing. Like, <laughs> you better be taking a lot of pictures. I feel like this is weird, and I hope, like, you're selfing yourself with my tumor. And so then at that, then when he came the next day, he airdropped all these pictures of my tumor onto my phone. That's and awesome. so I, I still have them. I, like, it's so cool, right? Because if you come from that kind of background, why wouldn't you want to see that? Of course. Um, so then Some he people sent, might disagree with you. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you're still like bed bound. Um, but so he sent those all to me. And so like that is kind of how I remember that discussion. But I pretty much knew once he told me what the tumor type was, what path I was going to be going on next. Do you think that preparing yourself ahead of time was helpful? Uh, I think there's good and bad about that. I think knowing, um, like, because I knew so much about the chemo specifically before I ever started chemo, I knew what the side effects were going to be. I knew what to expect. I knew what it was going to feel like, what it was going to look like. So that was all really comforting because like that kind of mystery around it wasn't there for me. Like I knew what was going to happen. Um, but on the flip side, because I knew all the side effects, I was almost like more scared because I knew what was to come as well. Can you talk about the chemotherapy? So I got four cycles of two different chemotherapies. So I got cisplatin and atopicide. Um, it's like a modified BEP protocol. So BEP is usually um, bleomycin, uh, cisplatin, and atopicide. And so I guess there's some literature here that if you drop the bleo, it's just as effective in my tumor type, um, which is good because bleomycin can be damaging to your lungs as you know and then um, being athletic that was a concern for me too. Of course. How often did you get the chemotherapy? So every 21 days every three weeks uh, for four cycles. So I started right before Christmas was my first cycle and I finished uh, beginning of March. Did you work through chemotherapy? Didn't. No. I There was really like no way I would have been able to work. The chemo was just so exhausting. It was um, day one to five. So I had Monday through Friday, I would go in every day for chemo. So, and it's, they're like not short treatments. You have to be hydrated quite a bit um, with cysts. And so like they're long treatments. And so that sucks up like at least half of your day by the time you're in and out. And then, so that's your one week. And then the week following, I was, the fatigue was so bad that I was, bed bound for at least five days so even like having a bath was like this massive victory or like getting I would go to the couch to watch tv there for a bit and I would be too tired to lay on the couch I'd have to go back into my bed um so that those five days were like a write-off then the week after I'd have one more week to recover and then that was the week that I could have potentially worked 
I don't know if I would have got through an eight hour day. Yeah, um, right. But then um, it was just kind of my week to like go back to normal life. So like mentally, I needed that escape too before I started it all again. And you mentioned that you're not the type of person to sit around at home. So what was it like having to be home for that prolonged period of time? Yeah, it's pretty much the toughest part of of the whole treatment for me. It, like the mental aspect was really tough. And towards the last few cycles, it got really, really tough for me to just think that this was never going to end. Like you feel like the fatigue will just never let go of you. Um, and then all of a sudden one day you're like, oh, this floor looks dirty. Maybe I should sweep it. And then you're like, holy man, I can actually like sweep a floor again. Um, so it was really, really difficult for me. Um, the fatigue was like my number one side effect. Obviously a big concern about getting chemotherapy at a young age is fertility and having children. Can you talk about your experience? Um, I'm 36 and a half weeks pregnant now. Um, we're newly married and to be honest, I, I can't even really, like, I guess my, um, drive and my opinion of this was so strong that I can't even really recall if he had any comments at the time. I think he was just so worried about me. Um, but like for me, um, motherhood or cause we didn't have any children, of course, but motherhood wasn't at the forefront for me. Like it was my life first. And so if I couldn't be safe and healthy and survive, then there was no point in my mind in discussing this at all. And so that was my number one priority. And not to say that people shouldn't talk about fertility with their oncologist. I absolutely think they should. Um, but I just thought, you know, there's so many other ways to be a mother. And so, and I'm still like very open to that. Um, so I was like, well, we will adopt. That's the way our life is supposed to go then, or we'll fo be foster parents. And so that's fine. That's the way that my life is supposed to be driven. And so that's what will happen. Um, once I knew what type of tumor it was and what type of chemo I was getting, the, the chemo I was getting doesn't really impact your fertility all that much. And I think that's a misconception among people as well is that they think all chemo just like wipes you of any chance of having your own children. Um, and so that's not really the case for me. So I do get very strange looks. Um, I just spoke at a conference and I was about 34, 35 weeks pregnant. And um, I, you know, I say like I'm a ovarian cancer survivor and I have this big belly and people are like, what? <laughs> um, but I still have one remaining ovary. And then I had fertility sparing chemo. So my husband and I were able to conceive after I was done chemotherapy. Congratulations. Thanks. So you're due soon. I am. And how has pregnancy been? It's been good. I can't really complain at all. I'm a very um, vomity person in general, and which is part of the reason I was worried about chemo too. But um, I just easy to vomit. So I definitely struggle with some of that. But other than that, I can't really complain. I've had it pretty easy. I'm glad I caught you before you had the baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To go into labor in the next hour. <laughs> so you finished chemo, and what was the recovery like after chemo? You know, it's you know, as you know, it's not one of these things. You finish chemo, and the next day you feel awesome. So what did it look like for you? 
Yeah, definitely the fatigue held on, um, like not that intense fatigue where you're in bed all the time, but fatigue as in like you really still have to pick your battles. So I, I still struggle with that. You almost develop this like fear of like being tired, right? Which is terrifying when you now are becoming a parent. Um, but I still like go to bed so early cause I just like hate to be tired. So like nine 30 and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to bed. Right. And so, um, so that certainly took a long time to wear off. I also took several months where I would just dedicate myself to really like one event. Like I could only commit to one thing at a time because like, I just didn't know how I was going to feel. And so that took a really long time to recover from that. Um, so that was probably my biggest thing post chemo. And by a long time, I mean like months. What about exercise during that time? Yeah. So I did return to exercising. Um, but again, it was like much different than what it had previously looked like, um, like much less frequent and much lighter weights, but I did try to keep that routine as well. I know in your career, so you're a cancer pharmacist and you've done a lot mm. with cancer fatigue and exercise and supplements. Can you talk a little bit about what your job is and how you've incorporated your diagnosis into what you do? Yeah, so I started my career in cancer in pediatric oncology. Um, I, as a general practitioner, I was always drawn to pediatrics, so it seemed like a natural place for me to fit in. And so I did a lot of my work before my diagnosis in just general PD, like pediatric oncology. Um, so that was amazing, and I, I still like love working with that population. Those kids are so resilient. They're like really the true cancer survivors out of all of us. And there's no way getting around that. They are just like these remarkable little humans. Um, so I love that work. Um, I eventually started progressing more to just like solid tumor um, area. And so with that, my work really specializes in symptom management. Um, and that's really the role of a pharmacist, I feel, in cancer care. Um, the oncologists that I work with, they are more... Um, focused on, you know, the monitoring, the treatment, and they, we have a collaborative prescribing agreement. So they really just allow us to manage any side effects. So any nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, any mouse sores, um, sometimes tumor lysis will identify and start treating. Um, and then definitely like fatigue and supplements for sure. So any sort of drug interactions or recommending things like lots of times we'll see anemia, so I've been recommending a lot of iron lately. Um, so anything like that, uh, I'm kind of teasing out if it's safe and if it's effective and what I'd recommend to someone. Do you see patients on your own? So when patients come in for chemo, then they would be assessed by a nurse. And as they're getting chemo, that's when I would see them. Okay. Yeah. And so generally an oncologist doesn't see them at that time. Okay. So you're kind of assessing. And then what kind of supplements do you recommend? So I would say like within my professional setting, it's not so much of the supplements I'm recommending. I find that people come to you with a lot of supplements that they want to take. Yes. And so it's really teasing out what is effective. First of all, no, let me back up. It's really teasing out what's safe. That's number one. And then what's effective, uh, what they're trying to achieve. And if there's something I can recommend that's 
more safe and effective to replace what they maybe want to take. Okay. Calcium and vitamin D play a huge role. I've already talked about iron as well. Um, so things like that are like commonplace. Um, now, if someone comes to me specifically for fatigue, it really depends on the person. Um, and it depends on like what their treatment was, what their surgery was, their diet, their exercise, their water intake, like all of that. I'm kind of assessing the person completely and then recommending different things after that. And how did you become so active on social media? So when I was diagnosed, um, I finished my first cycle of chemo and then it was Christmas time. So I started right before Christmas and then I went home for Christmas and someone in my community had said to me, oh, okay, like you're getting chemotherapy. Is that like when they put like radiation into your veins? And I just thought, oh, like that's a huge like misconception. Um, and I just thought there's so much mystery surrounding chemo and cancer treatment. So why don't I try to do something to improve that? And so at the time, my girlfriend and I, um, I don't know how we kind of decided, but we decided we were going to do Facebook live sessions during my chemotherapy. So for my next, I had four cycles total. So for my next three cycles, we sat down one day each cycle and live streamed me getting chemo. And I answered viewers questions as I was receiving the chemo. That's great. So, yeah, it was crazy what people would ask and like how many people were viewing it live and how many people watched those videos after. Um, and just the questions were so varied and they were so like innocent in nature. And I just thought if we could kind of remove some of this mystery, people will feel like here I am, here I am getting chemo, here I am overcoming cancer. So it's not so impossible for you to do it either. Um, if you see how someone else can do it. And I think also seeing someone who's living a normal life and working and being pregnant, you know, all mm -hmm. of that I think gives people a lot of hope and optimism. Yeah. And demystifies yeah. the whole cancer at a young age thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, it's kind of just snowballed on top of each other. It started with a Facebook Live, and then that got quite a bit of attention from more traditional media sources, um, which then put the word out there, then in turn gave more following to my social media um, kind of group. And then still, like, people find me all over the place. So when they're newly diagnosed, they'll reach out to me. I just had a woman like today reach out to me um, who's been newly diagnosed. And so just kind of that community just keeps on growing. Um, for me, like being 30 and diagnosed with cancer, I would go to cancer support groups and be the youngest one by 20 or 30 years. So it makes it really difficult to identify with these other group of cancer fighters because they don't have the same problems. They're not worried about how they're going to pay their mortgage. They're not like, what happens to my student loans if I die, right? Yeah. Like that, mm -hmm. that's not even on their radar. Um, so it's hard to be like, well, we both have cancer. We're the same when we're really not the same at all. Um, so I kind of turned to social media to kind of grow that community of young survivors um, to kind of lean on one another. Now, did you have that support for you? when you were going through this? 
So there was somebody in my community that I knew, like through the athletic kind of community, who was diagnosed um, probably a few months before me with a different type of uh, cancer, but like a rare tumor as well. Um, So she kind of did things in her treatment, like a few steps ahead of me. So I would like rapid fire questions at her quite frequently because she was always kind of like a month or two ahead of me. Um, even though like our chemo was different, our surgeries were different, like she was still dealing with some of these other things, right? Um, so I did have that support um, through her, um, which was amazing. Like even being someone that knows quite a bit about the environment and how you're going to be treated, you still want to ask like these stupid practical questions to somebody. And that's really what I was using her for at the time. Now on that note, did you feel like being a cancer pharmacist was a good thing or was too much knowledge not a good thing? Yeah, yeah. I think overall it did like play in my favor. I wasn't at all nervous about going and being treated. Like they were my coworkers that were going to treat me. So, I mean, having a nurse that I worked like worked alongside every day. That's who treated, like that's who infused my first chemotherapy. So none of that made me nervous. I knew what it was gonna look like, what it was gonna feel like. Um, so I think that definitely worked in my favor. How have you reacted to the fact, I mean, you're really popular on social media. You've been featured on a ton of media stuff. Good, bad, ugly? <laughs> Overall, it's been good. The last week I put a post about um, like people saying negative comments on social media or social media or haters or trolls, whatever you want to call them. It's funny. I write my social media posts like whenever the mood comes to me and then I don't necessarily post it at that time. So lots of times people will get the impression that something has imminently happened and that's not necessarily the truth. It's kind of like my overall take on all of it. Um, I would say though that the good has vastly outweighed the bad of sharing all of these details on social media. Um, It's been like, it's so my calling in life to just be able to help people that are going through this. And when I started working in oncology, it wasn't so much like I didn't really know why I wanted this job. I, I had come off of a, like a master's program here where I'd been working, been training in hospital so to be able to work with acute, uh, acutely ill patients. And I, after I was done that, I kind of kept gravitating to work in oncology. I hadn't even worked with anyone with cancer at all. And then I end up landing a job working in oncology. And I kind of was like, I'm not sure why I love this so much, but I just really do. Like, of course, I had had a grandmother pass away, but nothing like really close to me. Um, and then when I was diagnosed, I was just kind of like, this is obviously what I'm meant to be doing. Um, so, I mean, sharing kind of that, that aspect, kind of the educational aspect and the survivorship aspect together just kind of seems like a natural fit for me. So I would say that the good has vastly outweighed the bad. Of course, there's always going to be some downside. There's always going to be some negative comments. I mean, I, that's anywhere. (laughs) I kind of am the type of person, even if I know you or I don't know you, I'll take your comments um, and decide on my own if they're valid or not. And if I don't think they're valid, then I don't really care what you have to say. So um, that's always kind of been my personality. 
So I think I probably respond to negative comments on social media pretty well. Um, like it doesn't really impact me moving forward. So it's been, it's been vastly a great experience. That's awesome. And you probably had no idea that it was going to go in this direction. No, not, not at all. Like I'm still shocked when I look at the number of times, like our original Facebook live videos have been viewed. Like it's, it's incredible. And I didn't think people were going to find it that interesting, um, or find it like that inspiring. It would just seem like, yeah, why wouldn't I do this? This seems like something interesting to do. Let's do it. Um, so I definitely continuously surprised by that. That's awesome. And I saw on your website that you're doing something called Cancer Connect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What yeah. is that? So, so that is, um, so this is something I really struggled with. and was a problem that I wanted to solve for other cancer survivors. So we're really just getting it off the ground. So what it is, is it's a place where if you offer a product or a service or anything directed at people with cancer, you can be featured on the Cancer Connect portion of my website. And the reason why I did this is because when I was looking for like anything, let's say I was looking for a physiotherapist or for a chiropractor or my best friend's a massage therapist. So I never look for a massage therapist, but you know, something like that. If I was looking for someone to provide that kind of care to me, I would say to them, I'd like walk in from my initial assessment and I'm this 30 something healthy looking woman i would say yeah i have this history of ovarian cancer and their eyes are kind of like a deer caught in headlights because they're used to like you know relatively healthy people like oh i strained my back or whatever um and so i would just get so sick of that initial like shock that people have um and not being prepared to care for someone who has this type of history um so i wanted to collect a place where people with cancer could know that they are contacting people who want to work with people with cancer. They're not like these general practitioners trying to fit, um, like fit a patient into their practice. Like they're people that are actually focusing on that. And are there any resources or products that you found really helpful when you went through treatment? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I felt like a really fought an uphill battle to find what was good for me. And again, another reason why I wanted to do this, there was a couple of things that I really enjoyed um, that I felt like made my recovery, not so much like faster or improve my recovery, but more just like just care for myself. Um, so I did a couple of things. The first was I, I had a linen spray that like was like a lavender linen spray. And so like if you spend five days in bed, you start to like really hate this space and it starts to like smell gross and you just like, you don't have the energy to wash anything. So I had this like lavender linen spray that would just like freshen everything up. So that really helped as well. Um, I also like live by a diffuser. So to just improve like the humidity in my room too. Um, so I did that. Um, and then I, the last thing I did during my active treatment was um, I was like addicted to baths. So I did bath bombs like all the time. So those were kind of the things that I teased out that made me feel just better in that moment. Not necessarily anything that was going to improve my recovery or my chances of survival though. And as you were going through treatment, did you have, who helped you? Do you have family in the area, friends? Yeah, so my husband was with me all the time. He stayed with me when I was in hospital the whole time. 
Um, aside from that, my mom provided some of the support, um, like just hands on. Um, but other than that, like I, like I slept all the time. So, I mean, the support we needed was more, um, like buying groceries occasionally. Um, so I had a couple of girlfriends who would leave things like on our doorstep. Um, they just knew what we liked to eat. They knew what we wanted. And so they would just, without asking, go and do it and leave it. And that was like the best thing anyone could have done. So going off that, can what are some things and that were either pet peeves or some things that you would, would not recommend people do for someone going <laughs> through chemo? Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people, but I think some people um, feel so bad about what's happening to you that they really want to do something that's going to relieve them of that, right? And so that's not necessarily what the person with cancer actually needs. So by that, I mean, I would have people that I hadn't talked to like in years, like since high school that were reaching out and were like, I really want to go for coffee with you. And that's so nice. That sentiment is so nice. But I was very clear about saying no to people um, because if you're on death's door, you don't want to rekindle a friendship that you had 15 years ago. Like I, I wanted to spend it with my husband. I want to spend it with my family, with my nieces and nephews. Like that's who I want to be around. Um, and so I was very clear about saying no to those people. But some people do just show up at your doorstep too. Um, and so I would recommend not doing that um, because you don't know like how the person feels or what they actually want to be doing. And having to like fake smile and serve coffee or tea to someone is not at all what I wanted to do during my treatment. That's really good. I think, I think the ability to say no is really important. I think people, just like you touched on, you want to be grateful for everything and I think there's kind of a want to say yes to everything, but it's okay to not. Yeah, definitely. Like you just can't carry around that weight, right? And I and I hear a lot of cancer fighters say that is that they feel like it's now this like part time job to like uh, manage everyone else in their life, like disseminate information and come up with lists of things for people to do for them, and it's just like this extra burden you have to carry around. Um, and I certainly struggled with that too, like within my family, within my friend group, um, people feeling like they didn't have the information in an adequate time or didn't have the right information. Um, but you know what, honestly, I would just say to people, it is not like, it's just, it's my job to get better and to overcome this. It's not my job to disseminate information and make sure like everyone else is taken care of. So along those lines, how did you share information about your health and how you were doing with your friends and family? Was it through your blog or through other ways? Some of it was, um, but I also had like a personal, a more personal um, photo group on like iCloud that I had friends and family a part of. So that received like more intimate looks at things um, it, without it being like, so I don't want to say like, so crafted because I wouldn't describe my social media that way. It was just like more timely and more quick and more to the point, right? So like my family, they're spread across the world really. And just to, for them to be able to see a photo of me post-surgery 
was just like made the difference to them, right? Like they instantly felt relieved as opposed to just hearing, oh, Amy's doing well after surgery. They're like, oh, here's Amy, like sitting up in her bed after surgery, like things are good. Um, so I did that for my family. And I think I'm sure they appreciated knowing mm-hmm. that you were okay. And there's a yeah. big element of fear, I think, that goes on for everyone else. Definitely. Absolutely there is. Yeah. So I'd like to end with just a few questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one thing that you maybe wish you knew or surprised you about this whole process? Oh, gosh. There's, like, so many things. But I think what I say to people is that you really, really have to be your own advocate. Like, it sounds like kind of vanilla when I say it to people, but like, there's no other way to really get that across. Um, Like, no one has to, this, and this is what I often say to patients too, is like, no one has to deal with the consequences of your treatment but you. Like, really, when you go home, like, your doctor's not there, I'm not there, your nurse isn't there, like, your social worker, dietitian, no one's there. Like you are dealing with the outcome. So it is within your right to ask questions, to say no, to say yes. Like you're driving the bus, right? Because I don't have to go home and live with the consequences of a chemo that I never wanted. And I I just think that people need to be their own advocate then, like whatever they want. I think like when... I'm at work, like, I always have an idea in my head what I want people to do, right? But I have just as much respect for someone that says no as opposed to someone that says yes. Like, someone that clearly knows what they want, I have so much respect for that person. So I think you just have to really be your own advocate through every step of it. It's really true. People get barraged with a number of opinions, both from healthcare professionals and non-healthcare professionals. And I think you really just have to be your own advocate and make the decision that is right for you. Exactly, exactly. Can you describe cancer in one word? Mm. Uh, It's definitely been life-changing, I would say that. I'm a much different person than I was before. Um, I'm much different in my professional work and how I approach my patients. Um, And I'm much different in my personal life, too. I have started saying no to a lot of things in my personal life that has made me a lot happier since my diagnosis. Things I didn't realize that were draining me that were and things that I was scared to let go of for whatever reason that I have let go of. And it's just been very life-changing. So I would say I'm a very different person now. You're definitely extremely positive. And have you always been this positive throughout the whole experience? Um, I don't know if I like, thank you so much for saying that. I don't know if I would describe myself as a really positive person even now. Um, I think, oh gosh, I don't know how I describe myself. I think, um, before it was definitely different. Like it definitely had a different perspective on what I should be doing with my life. Um, so I have always been really driven. I'm really driven now, but there are certain things that I really cared about before and I just don't care at all all about now and I'm just upfront with people like that um so I think I'm just like I'm still probably the same kind of candid person I was before but I'm just like much more clear on like what I actually care about and I will say to people yeah I don't care about that at all (laughs) good 
So like, that's kind of what it's been like for me, especially being early in my career. Like there are certain things that you're made to feel like you should be pursuing. Um, and now I'm just like, well, that's not for me. It's definitely harder to say no than it is to say yes sometimes. And so to wrap up, where can our listeners find you on social media? There's so many places. <laughs> um, I'm probably most active on Instagram, so you can find me there. Um, I also have a website, amydfarmd.com, um, and I have a blog series there as well. So every Sunday I post a new blog, um, which is something that's relatively new since November. Um, I did have sporadic blogs before then, um, but I just thought blogging was kind of passe, and so I didn't really want to do it. Um, and then so many people kept asking me that I, I caved, and now I have a blog series there. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook too, Amy D. FarmD. Awesome. Well, I wish you lots of luck with the new baby. Thank you. A boy or a girl, or we don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, the surprise is awesome. Yeah, I need more surprises in life, right? <laughs> this is a good surprise. <laughs> Do you have everything ready? Um, pretty much, yes. I would say last weekend we finally got the nursery kind of together, so that was good. My husband, for some reason, is resistant at getting the car seat installed in the car. Like, I'm guessing 36 and a half. So we have, theoretically, a few more weeks. But I was just like, you're going to have this car seat in your car for, like, the next six years of your life. Like, just put just it do in. it. Yeah. Like, what's another week? Like, anyway, that's the only thing. I was just thinking of that today, too. Now, like, okay. Our... In Canada, do you guys Amazon everything? Because we Amazon Oh, my everything. God. I, we were away over the weekend and so we have a cabin in the northern part of the province that we live in and I'm still here actually and my husband had gone back home today and I was just like there's gonna be quite a few Amazon packages on the I was like just prepare yourself and on that note thank you so much Amy for joining me today and thank you to all of you who tuned in to listen to my conversation I cannot wait to share more powerful stories with you over the coming weeks and months if you liked today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as this is the best way to grow the show. You can head on over to my Instagram and Twitter page, Dr. Duplinsky, for more podcast information and cancer news and updates. Finally, if you or someone you know would be interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at interludecancerstories at gmail.com.